0: alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Wade Thomas. He's the CEO of aim to win And for over two decades, Wade has served as a strategic talent executive who guides leaders to develop and shape organizations from the perspective of high performance management, coupled with compassion and empathy. Wade has coached and consulted with hundreds of leaders who are now practicing the principles of bringing out the best in high performing individuals and teams so that they are equipped to achieve organizational excellence and business growth. He's the author of From the Heart, achieving epic results through building a heart based culture of compassion and empathy. Welcome, Wade. Thank you, Shannon. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you here, and I really look forward to learning from you. Tell us a little bit about you.
1: I was born in Northeast and then moved to Southeast Florida. Grew up with a fairly really normal childhood, came out of it, um, went to college, ran a retail store, graduate school, all those kind of things. And once I started working is when I I really started kind of coming into my own. You know, I I went up the career ladder very fast once I had the master's degree. I was a human resource professional. I was HR manager for, you know, a manufacturing plant in my mid to late twenties. I was a CHRO of a public company in my mid thirties. And so I I enjoyed a lot of success there. As I reflected back on it later, you know, what really kind of grabbed that success for me was the way I treated people. And it's kind of which has really I've based my business on ever since I've, I've been doing my own thing now for about six years, really teaching people how to leverage compassion and empathy in, in their business, in their leadership styles, because that, you know, that led the way through my career. And I think it's what will help other people.
0: And how did you deduce all of that professional experience to those two key things, compassion and empathy? How did those rise to the top as the most prominent things to focus on?
1: So it's interesting. So, you know, I just did it. You know, as I was going through it, I don't know that it was particularly the way I was raised. Maybe it was, but I just found out it worked. You, you know, you treat people that way, and it works. You empathize with them, you understand what they're going through, and it works. Now, could I have told you that 20 years ago? Probably not. But it took some reflection later on. What is that common theme that really led to success?
0: And were you the kind of leader that was getting results that were greater than your peers in some cases? So it caused you to think, what is it about my approach that's resonating or effective?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it was a little bit of a path, a journey for me to get to that point. But yeah, my results you know, from day one, you know, when I was managing a retail store, even, I outperformed the rest of the region and I was in a very small market. I went on to HR took over the plant HR manager role I mentioned, we changed the, the safety statistics were horrible. We moved it to the best in the company. We went from 130% turnover down to 25% turnover, which is pretty good in a manufacturing environment. And, and those results has followed me throughout my career. And and as I taught leaders, and I've been teaching leaders you know, throughout most of that time, that was kind of my niche as an HR leader. You know, I just taught them sort of the way I did it. I never really was able to put my arms around what it was until last year, I was sitting in a swimming pool. Just kind of reflecting on okay, what is it? What is this? What differentiates me? What is the special sauce? Why was I successful? How can I help more people by putting my arms around this? And that's when I really you know, realized that you know I treated people well, and I got into what does that mean? Well, it was empathy and it was compassion. And that's what that was the genesis of the book. You know, that was sitting in a pool that one day in the middle of COVID, and uh, you know, it kind of came up with that idea for the book and a way to really help organizations and people just get better at what they do.
0: One of the staggering and unfortunate statistics that you write in your book is that in the U.S., an estimated 88% of the workforce, 130 million people, leave work every day feeling that they work for an organization who doesn't listen and doesn't care about them. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, that was shocking to me. That that number came up during my research for the book. You know, it is really, you know, it just blew me away you know, actually accelerated my path to writing the book. It was, you know, we got to do something about this. And, but I kind of looked at it differently, you know, 88% is a big number. I kind of looked at the 12%, you know, what if an organization could be in the 12%, how powerful would that be as a differentiator? And oh, by the way, the more organizations that do that, the 12%, it's the 30%, 40%. And we start really seeing a much better society, but 88%. And that shouldn't surprise, you know, it was shocking to see it as a number. But, you know, if you spend any time on a social media feed, you know, you, you spend time talking to people, you know, you hear it. And that was one of the comments I got when I released the book from a lot of people was, you know, that really struck home because that's how they felt.
0: Yes, they're in that 88%. Yes. So what can companies do to change those odds, to reverse those ratios?
1: You know, it really is, you know, the big picture view of that is compassion and empathy. You know, and in the book I talk about a lot of different things that that means. But it's really understanding your people, taking the time to get to know them, you know, not just in the business world, but certainly in the business world, but also on the personal side. Get to know them as individuals. You know, a story I, I like to tell. My very first manufacturing HR job, I got put in, dropped into a union plant. The plant was very troubled. They struggle they're struggling. The union was new. It had been in place for about a year. They had just signed the first contract when I came on the scene. Uh, I was brought in to administer that first contract and, and try to make the most of the situation. And, you know, you're taught, you know, as you're going up through the HR ranks in a lot of cases, you know, you're taught even in graduate school that you have two entities. You have a company or management and you have the union. And those are those are the two entities. But one of the things I, I learned really quick is I was a lot more successful with that union when instead of uh, Amcast and UAW, it became Wade and Ben, Joe, Betty, Bonnie, Ariel. You know, once you began treating them like people and getting to know each of them as individuals, I spent most of my time on the shop floor. You know, I didn't hide out in the office. I got to know everybody in there. And the, the results of that, came, that came out of that were just, I mean, it really colored my entire career.
0: Absolutely. Do you have a specific example of a breakthrough? And you don't have to name names, but an individual who perhaps had the brand of being difficult or disgruntled or maybe even insubordinate, and you got to know that person, and then things changed. I have a lot of examples, but I'll stick with the same one. Um, you know, going into that union, I mean, the
1: entire union leadership team. You know, in a new union, by default, it's the agitators that have become the leaders, and you know, and I'll, I'll take a union president. As a great example, and uh, we'll call her Jennifer. That was not her name, but uh, but you know, coming into it, she was just known as difficult. You know, she was the ringleader. of The whole thing, leadership didn't like her. She was difficult to work with. You know, I took the time to kind of understand where she was coming from. And a lot of interesting things you learn, right? First of all, you learn the sins of the past. You know, that got to that point. But you know what? That wasn't a huge learning. What really jumped out at me was, you know, she had put forth all this effort to organize this plan. Has about 500 employees. And in the middle of Indiana, 500 employees for the UAW, United Auto Workers, small potatoes. So she wasn't getting much attention at all. She had no idea how to be a union leader, but nobody was teaching her, which really, you know, actually put me in an opportunity to teach her how to be a union leader, which kind of sounds ironic. But when you start sending the message, you don't have to, we don't have to be combative. We can work together. It's just Wade and Jennifer here. We got so much done in that plant over a couple of years. And it was uh, just that idea of working together, not against each other. It was just very powerful. And it all stemmed from taking the time to understanding her paradigm.
0: Yes, her paradigm, how she saw things, how she was not being recognized, didn't have exposure. It sounds like you were also really curious about her individual strengths and personality preferences, and you met her where she is.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's really the key of all this, right? It's not a one size fits all. It's not even. You can't even put people in boxes of two or three. Everybody is unique. Everybody's individual. As a leader, there's so much power in getting to know each of those individuals.
0: Yes. So for those who are listening and saying, that sounds great, Wade, I appreciate that, but I have an organization of hundreds of people and that's just not possible. What would you recommend to those who hear your advice, understand it, but can't figure out how they could implement that?
1: Maybe it's not you that knows everybody. Maybe it's your leadership team. So in most spans of control, don't go into the hundreds. Usually we have a middle, if you have that many people, there's middle management. And what what you need to do is get those people to know their people and their people to know their people. And and you work it throughout the organization. So the idea here is you're probably not going to create a heart-based culture by yourself. You got to create it with your leadership team. You got to flow it down. We is greater than me.
0: Yes, such great encouragement. So one of the things that you believe in is breaking the rules. And as a former HR executive, that might be a surprise to some, but you're, you're an advocate for breaking the rules to do the right thing. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was something that, you know, I, I really fought with my entire career because HR people, it is shocking. And, and I was known at many different companies as like not really being HR. And um, I'll, I'll accept that. But I also think that's, that's really generalizing HR people. I think a lot of HR people certainly you know, understand doing the right thing. It's just hard for them because they're told over and over again, we got to stick to policy. We have to stick to policy. And there's a lot of times, you know, I broke the rules. And I understand I started in a union environment where you're never supposed to do it, but we did it because sometimes it makes sense. You, know, you have a, you know, somebody loses a spouse, spouse dies. I have had this like several times in my career. Bereavement policies a week, you know, and if you're going to administer that policy, you're going to give them a week of bereavement. You know, maybe they can come back emotionally. Maybe they can't. But you know what else? There's also the logistics of handling the estate. There's handling all these other things. And so, you know, we always found a way to give them that time off. And I, you know, the systems that were always in place was you get a week of bereavement under the contract, and then you get eight attendance points, for instance. You know, so somebody would use their week, and then they'd miss and miss and miss. They get fired. And that makes no sense. Yeah, you know, it's just not the right thing to do. And there's just so as an HR professional or as a leader. You have to be able to or willing to step out there and say, we're going to break this policy because it's the right thing to do and take whatever hits we take with it. That's a tough thing to do. But, you know, the effectiveness of it when you do it is amazing.
0: Absolutely. Again, meeting people where they are, recognizing their individual situation, the situations that maybe were not foreseen when some of those policies were created and how you can offer them that generosity and that time and space for what they really need. So, what are some other ways that you have experienced generosity in your career?
1: You know, it's uh, it's going above and beyond. You know, I <clears throat> you know I remember you know a kind of experience from my own personal life. You know, back in 2009, I was a CHRO of a company. We had some pretty major programs rolling out. It's a big public company, and my father passed away. And, you know, during that process, you know, I, I had to spend three or four weeks in the hospital, you know, my CEO stepped in and really just made it happen. His, it wasn't like, I didn't have to go ask. In fact, you know, I told him my plan, you know, you know, it's, it's halfway across the country or all the way across the country. I was in Florida and I was in Phoenix. I said, you know what, I'll fly out there for a week. I'll come back. And he says, no, you're just going to take whatever time you need. I will figure it out here. And, um, you know, what that said to me, you know, just really stay with me. I mean, you know, the loyalty and engagement that I gave that company after that was really, you know, a lot stronger
0: and, you know, and I was better off, you know, for sure. Oh my gosh. Especially at such a challenging time in your life. And I'm sorry for your loss and that he was willing to give back to you to give you the freedom to do what you needed to do. And then how Mm -hmm. you have then really paid that forward, right? It sounds like in the one example that you gave about when bending the rules made the most sense, it was in that compassion and empathy where you could be supportive of someone's life situation and recognizing that, you know, you'll figure it out. You'll work it out.
1: Yeah. Even if you're a huge company, you can figure those things out. Yeah. There's always a way.
0: And so what are some ways that you've seen generosity when there is an economic downturn or when there's been a, Challenging time like this past year, for example, where a lot of organizations were struggling. What what have you witnessed from a front row seat of that kind of generosity?
1: Yeah, I'll go back to the previous downturn actually, and it was uh, you know I was I was ahead of HR, same CEO by the way. But uh, you know it was it was a tough time. We laid off over a three year period eighty six percent of our workforce, and uh, and uh, it was so it was it was tough. And I just remember you know our CEO, you know, coming out there and saying, we're going to come to the senior leadership team saying, before any of us gets paid, you know, bonuses or anything like that, we're going to pay the people, you know, they're going to get, you know, as much as we can give them, we're going to try to save as many jobs as we can. And we're just not going to take any discretionary compensation. And then they came to me on the side. And he said, I want you to cut my salary 20%. You know, which I said, I can't do that, because we have a board of directors compensation committee. <laughs> dad needs to do this, he says, I want my salary to be 20% lower.
0: When we come back, weed will define a heart-based culture.
1: Hey, Calvin here. Join me, Brandon, Christina, and Lee on the Straight Up Show podcast on all your podcast platforms. Straight Up is a show that discusses topics you want to talk about but won't hear about in mainstream
0: media. Topics range from how COVID-19 impacted the Asian community to how cartoons are therapeutic to hardworking adults. So we invite you to join the conversation, but if you do, we only have one rule on our show. You gotta be Straight Up. And we're back with Wade Thomas, the CEO of aim to win How would you define a heart-based culture?
1: You know, a heart-based culture is really one that you put compassion and empathy on a forefront. You don't just do that. You don't don't just, okay, we're going to be compassion, empathetic. Let's all take an online class for two hours a year. Really, it boils into everything you do as a leader. So you put compassion, empathy into performance management. You put compassion, empathy into your employment decisions put compassion, empathy in your communications into the way you manage time and prioritize. And really it has to flow through everything you do as a leader. It, so, and, and like, I illustrated this throughout my own career. You know, I went 20 years before I even realized that I had any compassion or empathy. I, I just did it because I was in everything I did. And really that's kind of the key to being heart-based is when it's baked in to just the way you run your business. In fact, in my book, I taught, that's one of the first things, the first principles I talk about is having compassion, and empathy means you are making the hard decisions you are stepping up to problems. They're not mutually exclusive. But what it does do is it changes the way that you look at it. You know, it changes the way that you present it. You know, you try to figure out what is going on with the individual, for example. They're not performing. Rather than go straight to yelling at them or firing them or punishing them in some way, ask the question, why? You know, and maybe the end result of all this is it's not a good fit for them and they have to go seek excellence elsewhere. You know, at least you're figuring out why. You know, and and so it's really kind of getting at that The empathy is really where it starts.
0: Yes. And you outline in your book these eight principles that you recommend for people to create a heart-based culture, create an environment for individual success, make the hard decisions like you're just referring to, influence over authority. So principle number four is do not tolerate negative behavior. I think that's one that many of us can empathize with and recognize is some dysfunction in our own workplaces. Tell us more about that.
1: So, so this whole heart-based culture doesn't work when you allow toxic behavior, you know, negative behavior. And here, here's the problem with the the toxic employees. So often they're your best performers or you believe they're your best performers. And, you know, I have a story I just love to use here. I had a a VP of sales that worked for me when I was head of HR. And, um, he told me, from his past as a uh, as a sales leader. Before he was my VP of sales, he, he worked at a business unit in that capacity. And he shared with me that, you know, his best salesperson was just a complete jerk. Nobody liked him. He's afraid, of, he's untouchable because he's bringing in 20% of the revenue or some huge number like that. And, and finally he says, you know, it just got so bad. He says, I'm going to step up. And I'm just going to do it. And, and he, he let the guy go for the, you know, for the toxic behavior. And you know what happened? Sales didn't go down 10%. They didn't go down 5%. They didn't stay even. Sales went up. They went 10 to 20% because everybody else, all their sales went up along with it because this like weight was now lifted off their shoulder. And then he did it again and again. And so he had over and over again, it, was, it became a formula for him. He just didn't tolerate it. And that was kind of the eye-opener for me is, you know, my answer has always been the culture was more valuable than that individual's performance. But the eye-opener was, guess what? the team performance went up, even though that individual performance was gone. And so you can't do that in a heart-based culture. You just cannot tolerate that, whether it be from a salesperson or even a leader, unfortunately. And, and so that is one of the most compassionate things you can do is take out that toxic individual in a workforce.
0: Yes. So begin with a conversation, feedback, trying to help support and develop that person. And if you're recognizing that, all of that effort isn't getting you anywhere, then you have to make that tough decision, protect the culture and protect all of the other people in it. Yeah, now you should empathize with them first.
1: So yeah, I'm not, you know, it's not go straight to uh, out the door, but at, you gotta ask that question, why? You know, and a lot of times they were taught that that's how you get results. Uh, and sometimes they're just jerks, but it's important to, to distinguish between
0: the two. Cause that's another thing I'm hearing you say, Wade, is be really clear about the culture that you are creating and behavior that's associated with that culture looks like and what it doesn't. And how do you hold people accountable to the the norms and the agreements that you're making about being a part of that culture? So speaking about compassion and empathy, what have you found in these heart-based cultures that you've helped to create? What are some of the strategic benefits and advantages?
1: You know, there's some obvious ones. You know, you're, you're gonna get a lot higher engagement out uh, of your people. You know, you're going to, you're not gonna lose as many so your retention rates get better. Those are some of the obvious ones. There's some other ones that are a little bit less obvious, but are every bit is real. One being innovation. You know, we often don't think of innovation. You know, the problem in a, a culture that's not heart-based is people are worried to put themselves out there. They don't want to take that leap. They don't feel psychologically safe. And when you have a heart-based culture and you create that psychological safety, people are going to take chances, you know, it, it, which, you know, maybe going down a rabbit hole here. But the key thing to understand in that particular element is is understanding failure a little bit better. There's three types of failure. You know, there's there's kind of the inadvertent failure. You know, the business failed because of COVID. Nothing nothing they could have done either way. You're not going to celebrate that failure, but you're not going to punish it either. There's another kind of failure, which is failure because somebody repeatedly broke policy. They continue to do the same mistake over and over again. And those are things you have to deal with as a leader. You have to, you know, you have to address those in in a firm way. But the third type of failure, and usually the most common, is you tried something new and you failed. How you handle that, when you handle that in a heart based way, when you help help them learn from a mistake, you move past the finger pointing to what did we learn. That's where you really get the innovation, is when you can really wrap your arms around that kind of failure and handle it in a compassionate and empathetic way. Innovation's a big one. It also flows through customer service. Can you imagine if you have compassion and empathy with your customers? how powerful that is, yet how rare that is. And uh, so it really collaboration, you know, when people feel safe psychologically, they're going to be open to each other. They're going to collaborate. You're going to get a lot more, you know, team-based efforts. So those are some of the uh, really things that you'll drive when you get to a heart-based culture. And, you know, all those things will lead straight to the bottom line.
0: Big advantages and returns big returns and advantages for things like attracting, retaining and engaging people and innovation. What a great point about innovation and how that is a result of having a psychologically and emotionally safe work environment. And part of that is how you handle mistakes and setbacks, those those mistakes that are the result of trying something new and pushing for more, you know, creating Advancement and continually improving. Do you have a real example of of that kind of a mistake and how it was handled well? This is kind of an interesting one.
1: You know, in a book, I talk about making decisions based on the employees' well-being benefit. Right. So, hiring decisions, for instance, you hire somebody that is an up-and-comer, you know, over somebody that's really experienced from the outside. Most of the time, that internal person is going to work out better than the up-and-comer, but not always. And so I, I've seen that. I had, I've had several examples in my career where you, you've taken chances on people, right? And they don't work out. And so an old school response to that, and I've seen this response, I've been on the other end of that, is going to be, I told you that person never make it. You should have gone with the 45 year vet- veteran, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the better response is, okay, why didn't this person work? Where did we miss? Was it somewhere in, Did we over some particular aspect of them? Did we undersell maybe some of their derailers? Or did we just not prepare them, you know? By the way, that last one is usually where it happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, was there a opportunity in the onboarding process had they not received the kind of support they needed when they got there? Those are really helpful examples to learn from is there's probably truth in a lot of those answers, right? Perhaps that person wasn't the right fit. Maybe we did overlook some of their derailers. Maybe we didn't onboard them in a way that was going to set them up to win. And I think that aim to win the title of your company is a good one to keep in mind when we think about, you know, what does success look like? Well, you know, what does winning look like? What is the target that we're after? And then how are we going to use everything as an opportunity to learn and grow and develop to, to hit the target? Yeah. And winning is how you define it. And so that, that the name "aim to win" comes from exactly
1: that. It's figuring out what you mean by winning and being strategic and intentional about how to get there.
0: So, one thing that you deeply believe in and model is more "we" than "me" to help us see it from your eyes.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, as a person, I've always had a tendency to do is do it myself because if you want something done right, you do it yourself. I mean, is, isn't that what your dad told you? You know, it's. Uh, but the reality is, is very rarely. Are you truly going to accomplish epic things? You know, the power of we, you know, when you get people together and you get people going in the same direction, working toward the same thing, you get a team effort, you can accomplish much greater things.
0: Yes. We saw that model this year, I think, more than I've ever witnessed in my life through 2020 and now into 2021 as we recognize that we cannot do this alone. And all of those leaders and professions and people who make such significant contributions to the way in which we live that we maybe took for granted before. And then in the team setting, you know, we we miss being with people. We miss being able to collaborate in person the way we used to. And we have found innovative ways to still stay connected and support each other. But I think you're right on this the even though we may have been taught to depend on ourselves more than anyone else, we life is a team sport.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: If, if you really want to accomplish things life is a team sport yes so where can people find you wade i think the
1: best way is uh, connect with me on linkedin There, wade thomas uh, business impact coach if you have a trouble finding which one there's a surprising number of wade thomas's you can find me on my website um aim to i'm also out there on instagrams underscore wade underscore thomas and in uh, facebook as well i have a podcast too
0: yeah aim to win Thank you so much, Wade, for investing your time and talent with us. We so appreciate you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Great conversation. ROG takeaway tip. How to apply what we've learned to our own work and lives. Let's consider how to create our own heart-based culture. The context could be your workplace, home, community, anywhere. Wade reminds us that meeting individuals with compassion and empathy yields a better environment and best results. So how do you do that in your own life? What are some of your best practices? And if you don't do this often yet, what could you do? Compassion literally means to suffer together. It's defined as the feeling that arises when you're confronted with another suffering and feel compelled to relieve that suffering. You learn enough about a person's situation to feel with them. It's one of the most powerful ways to connect with others, and it requires truly caring about another person and listening to their story. Emotion, researchers generally define as empathy, is the ability to sense another person's emotions, coupled with the ability to imagine what someone else might be thinking or feeling. Cognitive empathy sometimes is called perspective taking, and it's the willingness to try to understand another person's emotions. And if you're really experiencing empathy, you might have thoughts or even words like, if I'm you, I'm feeling so frustrated that no one is listening to me. And if they nod or maybe even tear up, you have felt that correctly. But check for understanding and don't try to fix it. Simply aim to understand. If you were them, how do you think you would feel? The second takeaway tip for us to model in our own lives is taking the time to get to know each member of our team how well do you know your people? So picture yourself on a virtual meeting with a group of people that you work with often. How many of them do you know personally? One practical thing that you could do is hit reply all to the meeting invite just to capture the names and emails of everyone on the call. Then sort them by the people you work with the most to the least. Then from the top of the list, send an email one at a time. Something like, hi, it was great to see you on the call earlier today. Let's connect sometime. I realize that I don't know you as well as I'd like and it would be great to learn more about you. Here's a link to schedule a time that's convenient. Pick one person a week or maybe even one person a month. That would be 12 people that you know better personally a year from now than you do right now. It's a deliberate and intentional act. As Wade validates, it makes a huge difference. Next week, you'll hear similar leadership advice and encouragement from our guest, Debbie Hart, from the Walt Disney Company. She shares about the gift of feedback and how to invest in personal phone calls to your team members. So this week, think about how you can create your own heart-based cultures with compassion and empathy and really get to know your people. Until next week, stay generous, everyone.